0: where my handle is at turkeyhitman, and I will be sure to follow you back. And now, for this week's show. Hello and welcome back to this week's episode of the Turkey Hunter Podcast. You are listening to episode number 139, Habitat Management for Wild Turkeys with Grant Woods. And I am your host, and the guy who is going to share with you a pretty cool Wild turkey story at the end of the show. Well today we are 266 days, 8 hours, 59 minutes, and 48 seconds away from opening day of spring turkey season in Alabama. And last week I shared some of the things that I learned this past spring while hunting small parcels of property. And one of the things that I shared was how important managing the habitat on those smaller parcels is. Especially having a food source on that parcel. I also mentioned I was going to be bringing you more on managing habitat for wild turkeys. And today, you guessed it, that is exactly what I have for you guys. So today I have an interview with Grant Woods with Growing Deer TV. And I know what you're thinking hey, this is a turkey hunting podcast. Why are you interviewing someone from Growing Deer TV? Well, because Grant knows what he's talking about when it comes to habitat management and he's practicing what he preaches. Or maybe he's preaching what he's practicing. Either way, he knows this stuff and since he's made a long career of habitat management and devising plans for landowners and he's very passionate and knowledgeable about turkey hunting as well, I knew he was a great person to interview for the show. And without further ado, here's Grant Woods with Growing Deer TV and I'll see you guys on the other side. Hey everybody, I am very excited today because I've got a special guest on the line with me who is going to talk to us about habitat management and a little bit about planning as well for wild turkeys. And I'm really excited about it because this is something that I'm starting to pay more attention to, not only on the property that I own, which, as you guys know who listen to the show regularly, is a very small parcel of property, but some of the things that I can do to help improve the habitat for turkeys on some of my leased properties as well. So I have on the line today Grant Woods, who is with Growing Deer TV. And, Grant, how are you and where are you today?
1: You know, I'm well. Thanks for having me, Andy. And I'm in Branson, Missouri. I live just north of Branson, Missouri. I'm from the area and went off to school at Georgia and Clemson. And then my wife and I found a piece of property for sale back here 15 years ago, and we've raised our family and lived here. Awesome.
0: That's fantastic. Well, hopefully the majority of the people listening to the show have been to your website or seen some of your videos on YouTube and Are familiar with you, so you live there on what you call the proving grounds.
1: We do. We 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 didn't have any money like a lot of young couples. So and we wanted some acreage. Both farm kids, and I'm I'm a wildlife biologist by training. We were living, excuse me, in South Carolina, bringing on about 13 acres and wanted more acreage. And when we returned home just to visit family, my wife happened to pick up a real estate guide and found what was basically an old burned out cattle ranch for sale and. We were able to negotiate and end up buying that ranch. I mean, it was the bottom of the barrel. And, and mm-hmm. to really illustrate literally how bottom of the barrel it was, it's all we could afford. I walk a lot. I, I walk for exercise because I'm a kidney transplant patient and I have to keep my weight down and I don't want to go to the gym. So I got to walk every day So bought this thing is for a Google Earth course, and I had a topo map and I get out walk every morning learning land and you know just marking off the map where I walked and in that first year I saw one deer. I saw a tail going wow. around a cedar tree in in a year. Wow. And and and, and to put that in scale folks, we were on 1500 acres and I saw one deer. Hmm. So that's where the name the proving grounds come from because if the wildlife management techniques worked here, rocky, overgrazed, high-graded timber Ozark Mountains, it should work anywhere and and we have, after 15 years, of course, guys. we have hundreds of turkeys now and way too many deer and harvest large deer. And it's just really been fun to watch that habitat turn around.
0: Yeah. Well, and not only fun to watch it turn around, but know that that you are... One of the driving forces behind that, of course, Mother Nature has a lot to do with it, but you've been working hand-in-hand hand with Mother Nature to get it to turn around. So that's got to be very, very nice to, or very rewarding, I should say, to see that happen over the period of years.
1: That has been, a, you know, it has been, and my family's been involved, and we've raised daughters doing this, so it's just been a, a great life.
0: Yeah, Good deal. Well, my next question was for you to tell us a little bit about yourself. I don't know if you've got anything more that you want to go into detail of that, but also to tell us how you got into turkey hunting.
1: Yeah, let's just go right to the turkey hunting. You know, I, I was raised on a farm about an hour from here, a small farm, and just always loved the outdoors. There were no deer in the county, and we quail hunted and rabbit hunted, and I, I still remember the very first deer I found a Someone had poached a deer, and I found it running my rabbit traps, little live rabbit traps. One morning for school, I found this poached female fawn in one of our little fields. Went and got my dad, and it was cold it was in the winter. We drug it up to the hog house, and he come up from work. We skinned it out, and and I guess I started fantasizing, if you will, about deer, maybe being able to deer hunt someday, just seeing a deer.
0: Yeah.
1: And and then there was turkeys in another part of the state, and we'd drive over there and turkey hunt, and Just, you know, just always was drawn to that type of stuff. And finally, they got turkeys restored in my area and could hunt a little closer to home. And then went down to Georgia and South Carolina to go to school. And, you know, boy, that's turkey, big-time turkey hunting down there. Those guys take it really seriously and sort of started calling with some of those guys and hunting public land down there and really competitive hunting and and just uh, really, really enjoy turkey hunting.
0: Yeah, and you've got several videos on your website of your guys that work for you turkey hunting but also you've got some with your dad in them and i I enjoy seeing those those are always a lot of fun my dad got me into hunting and so you know anytime i see someone hunting with their dad like you guys hunt together i just you know you can't help but smile when you watch well thank you you know
1: my dad is 86 he's still my best friend he was my best man at my wedding and so yeah we get him out hunting all we can he had a pretty bad bout of cancer last year seems to be recovering pretty well and he's really excited he tagged two turkeys this spring for deer season this fall, so he's he's really excited
0: about that, yeah, that's awesome. Well, I want to talk to you because a lot of people listening to the show are like me, and they own a little piece of land and Those that don't own some land do lease some, and so I know there's some techniques that we can do to improve the habitat on those leased pieces of property, just like the ones that we have complete control over. So I wanted to talk to you about that, and really I put these questions together, and then I got to thinking, I said, you know, after I read back through them, I thought, I mean, I'm basically going to be asking Grant all about managing habitat for wild turkey so why not just pretend like it's one parcel like it Mm -hmm. would be if i were managing my little piece of heaven that i own in central alabama so let's pretend we have a thousand acres i'm sorry let's pretend we have a hundred acres Mm -hmm. i was getting real excited there (laughs) i was going for a thousand acres and let's just say, as hard as this is to do, because it's not exactly real world, and, and we'll dip back and forth in this real world versus what I would like, let's pretend we've got a 100-acre island. Mm-hmm. Because I know we when we have 100 acres and we're trying to manage that, we need to look at our neighbor's properties as well, don't we?
1: We do. You know, turkeys tend to have a pretty large home range. They move around a lot. They're They're very driven by... the the most convenient food source and, and of course brood habitat and nesting habitat are critical so we want to consider all those factors.
0: Yeah. And as much as we do need to consider them, those, what the neighbor's properties look like and what the neighbors do with their properties, we have zero control over. So you know, that's why I kind of want to look at this like, all right, in the fake world, in our dream world of a hundred acre island where we have no neighbors, what would we like to do? And then we'll kind of dip into maybe what is the real world where we do mm-hmm. have neighbors on some of this. So... Let's take our 100 acre island that has basically not been touched, but we have some deer and we have some turkeys on it. For turkeys, how much of that 100-acre island would you say needs to be fields, and how much would need to be in timber? Organs? Yep,
1: great great question. You know, when I was a, a boy here in Missouri, we're skipped right into reality just a second. All the turkeys were in the southern part of the state, basically in the rugged Ozark Mountains where they couldn't be hunted out. Mm-hmm. And, and there were no turkeys in northern Missouri, no turkey season, no turkeys in northern Missouri. And, as they started restocking the counties in southern Missouri and getting successful populations, somebody said, well, gosh, I wonder, is any chance all they'd make it in northern Missouri? And they put some up there, and now there's way more turkeys in northern Missouri. And, and we've learned that turkeys do great with, you know, 70 80% open area and, and 10 20%, 30% timber to, to roost in. Mm-hmm. And the really only thing turkeys are using that timber for is roosting, predator avoidance, blah, blah, blah. But they're making a living on the ground, as you know, all day long. That's where their food and cover is. And under a full canopy forest, there's not a lot of food or cover for turkey. That's not really good turkey habitat. And all the old, great southern turkey books written from chasing those gobblers back in the swamp, whatever, those are great. I love reading them, but they're about chasing one or two gobblers and not like driving through Kansas and literally seeing a 1,000 turkeys in a flock, literally. Right. So open land is much more productive for turkeys than closed canopy timber. So, you know, if I had a small property, I'd want at least 50% open. And open doesn't mean, you know, bare ground, but it means a combination of of nesting habitat and production fields and stuff like that.
0: Okay. So then of that say 50% that you've got in open or in fields, we'll, we'll put it that way, is there a certain percentage that you would turn into nesting habitat?
1: Yeah, there sure is. You know, I, I think nesting habitat is critical and it's so often overlooked because it's not hunting habitat and they don't think about a it food. It's almost like sanctuaries for deer. People want to overlook it. It's not as glamorous. Mm-hmm. And, and nesting habitat is something that's relatively thick they need some bare ground in there so turkeys and turkey poles can get around. You know, zero to two feet tall. Then, you know, ten feet tall does a turkey no good. It's that right. first couple of feet off the ground. And ideally, it's just tall enough that they can periscope or look right over the top of it to look for predators and then duck back down and be totally concealed. Okay. And and without good nesting habitat, that per- turkey population is not going to thrive and and build up in population. They're just going to be really vulnerable to predation and other
0: factors. Yeah. Okay. Is that nesting habitat and i know we're talking about a small piece of property a small parcel of property relatively speaking into to a turkey's range but is that something that you would try to manage with prescribed fire to, to maybe rotate an area out you know on a three-year rotation or something like that how how are you going to maintain yeah, that?
1: I, i'm not as worried about rotating out i probably would in most instances use prescribed fire we use it an awful lot here to the proving grounds and if you think about it, if you start burning, especially that far south and late January, early February, you're going to have enough growth back to be great nesting and even brood habitat by nesting and brood season. Now, uh, we burn here every spring, and we burn early before nesting and brooding season. And, you know, those young early successional plants grow quickly. So ragweed, which, you know, sounds yucky, but is a tremendous turkey habitat type plants. It makes what we call umbrella cover, thick on top, open underneath. Mm-hmm. So, turkeys move freely underneath ragweed. Usually, there's a lot of soft insects under ragweed, and turkeys make a living on soft insects. So, it's great turkey habitat. And so, that, that fire can be used to bring back early succession habitat. And if you burn it early enough in the late winter, early spring, it's great habitat that year. I'm, I'm not missing a rotation. I don't want to burn late May or something because I'm going to be burning up some nests or poults or something like that. And, you know, another consideration is we want those areas to be large enough that a predator, let's say a raccoon or a coyote, can't just troll downwind of our of that block of habitat and smell all the turkeys in there. And we all know that a wet hen has a lot of odor. She's easy to smell. It's called the wet hen th- theory that predators, after if it rains a lot during nesting season, there's Usually a real small hatch because predators just follow those hens to the nest so easy and disrupt the nest. Mm-hmm. So I, I like my turkey areas, you know, literally cover areas like that, 10, 20 acres, not two acres or five acres. I call those predator food plots. Yes, fawns will be born in there and turkeys will be born in there, but very few survival. And this research was actually done in Mississippi State. Back in the old days, SMZs or stream management zones were really popular. And people would leave a small, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50-yard buffer along a little stream, a little streamlet. And not cutting trees off there. And that's great for stopping siltation and real estate looks and stuff like that. But what happened is the turkeys would all leave the pine plantation and go nest in that streamside management zone where there was some thicker cover. And it's so narrow, any predator going on downwind side smelled every turkey in there and wiped them out. They just become predator hunting zones.
0: Yeah yeah and and they definitely catch on to that. I mean, the predators they're making a living from doing just that from preying on the the critters that we like to chase, oh, yes, and like and they're very
1: efficient, animals. you know, just guys just last week or I think it was last week, week before there was a one of wildlife society publications, and someone had put some cameras on bears in moose habitat up in Alaska, mm-hmm. and everyone always thought, you know bears kill a few moose calves, but not that many and 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 these bears were averaging at one point some odd moose calves a day. And within two hours, there was no sign there was ever a moose calf there. Everything was consumed. Wow. And, and so during the moose fawning season, an average bear was killing over 30 moose calves.
0: Holy cow. Well, so it
1: didn't take a lot of bear to, you know, to really hurt a moose population and that type of predation.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. All right. So, uh, and I may be nitpicking, and it's okay to say if I am. In these fields or open areas that we're going to have on our 100-acre island, is there any benefit to shaping those fields a certain way where we have more field edge? No, I don't
1: think so. Actually, you know, ideally I would have a circle so there's more in the middle, further away from predators, and less edge. You know, edge okay. is a great thing for wildlife. There's no doubt about that. But we got to remember more edge or a star shape or something that spreads it out. It's just easier for predators to smell all the way through there. Okay. And and don't discount predators. I mean, they are a huge, huge factor on landscape. Fur prices have been horribly low for several years now. People are not trapping at all like they used to. They just can't make even come close to making a profit. And so predators are a huge factor, especially down south. Everyone knows there's a gazillion coons running around. And when That's you sure. develop a lot of edge, you're making it ideal predator habitat.
0: Okay. All right. So really then the predators are working those edges more so than they are just right down the middle of a field. And, oh, yeah. Yeah.
1: No, yeah. no trapper wades in the middle to set a trap. He's got a trap on the edge or a road crossing or something like that. Yeah. Those are, those are predator highways, just like the edge at stream management zone. That's going to be a predator
0: highway. Okay. All right. So... I want to, I want to, I guess, touch on something and then, or go back and touch on something that that you mentioned, and then we'll we'll move on. You mentioned that you don't like the growing season burn. You
1: know, here, here's what I do on, on our land, I, and the older I get, the more I follow this, but I burn when it's dry. It really doesn't right. matter to me what month it is, because I, I can't burn all my property at once, so if I happen to burn one little area and there has to be a nest or two in there, but I'm improving the habitat for a lot of other species in the following year there. But natural fires, and, and you know what is natural? Everyone throws this word natural out, and I've yet to find a really good definition. So I've come up with the definition. Natural is what occurred here in North America pre-European settlement. Okay. Not pre-Native American settlement, but pre-European settlement, because Native Americans kind of more or less ebbed and flow with these things and moved around very, very mobile, moved around a lot. And so if we look at fire scars and really good data, we find that it wasn't this nice three- to five-year interval that the universities talk about or blah, blah, blah. That's great if you can work it out. It rarely works out because of weather conditions. When it's dry, there was probably a lightning strike or an Indian campfire got out, whatever happened, and it burned. And we know from the fire scars, it didn't burn like what we do. It may burn 70 miles long and 100 miles wide. It was right. a big, big fire converting huge blocks of land into better habitat, not little 20 acres at a time. So we burn here when it's dry. We, we we burn, we have burned in almost every month out of the year here at the
0: proving grounds. Oh,
1: wow. And what you find is when you burn at different months, you get a much different vegetative response. And that diversity is, of course, critical for wildlife. So, you know, we burn in spring, we're more likely to get a response from native grasses. We burn in the fall, we get more forbs, native legumes, plants mm-hmm. that are very beneficial to wildlife. So, you know, if I had my ruthers I'd be burning in August, but I burn whenever it's dry enough to have a good fire.
0: Okay. All right. That's very interesting. So I've been reading up a little bit on prescribed fire, and uh, mm-hmm. and it seems like some of the more recent studies that have been done are showing that as far as turkeys are concerned, that the growing season burns seem to be more beneficial in the long yep. run.
1: Yeah. You, you get more you, growing season burns reduce hardwoods more, especially right. hardwood saplings, which is usually good turkey management, and encourage more of these like partridge pea and, and other really beneficial native forbs. Native yeah. grass is wonderful cover. I love it. But if you spring, bring, spring burn, spring burn, you'll find that you can't control hardwood saplings coming in and you end up with a stand of about pure grass after a time. When you burn in the fall, you tend to get a lot better species diversity, especially these forbs, and you do a better job of setting back hardwood saplings, which is critical for turkey habitat. And by the way, deer habitat too.
0: Very good. All right. So... In our fields on this 100 acre island that we have, our fields that we've created, what would you recommend as far as planting in those fields that we were going to plant some sort of crop? Would you plant? Well,
1: clover greens up. It's one of the first quality forages to green up in the spring. And anyone's turkey on much around clover fields has probably killed a, a turkey or two that their crop was just full of clover. So I, I like about 10% of my food plot acreage in clover, you know, and there's no exact ratio, but somewhere around 10. Mm-hmm. Because when clover is really growing and productive, gosh, it takes a very small acreage to feed a lot of critters. Right. And when it's hot and dry and clover is dormant or too cold and clover is dormant, doesn't matter if you got the whole hundred acres of clover, it's not going to be food there. So when clover is productive, it doesn't take very many acres. And when it's not productive, it doesn't matter how many acres you have. So I like about 10%. Of My food plot acreage or my property, uh, but I'm really food plot acreage in clover. And then I'm a huge soybean fan for turkeys. I mean, they, they, it makes an awesome umbrella cover, right? Bare below, big umbrella mm-hmm. comes on top. It, it attracts a lot of beneficial insects, but these soft insects like spiders and whatnot are great turkey food. And, of course, when it makes grain, they love it. They absolutely love it and prosper yeah. on it. It's high in oil, high in fat, does really well. So it's hard to beat a combination of a small percentage of your food pots. In clover, and a much larger percent in soybeans. And you might overseed that soybean plot with something in the fall.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So some sort of a uh, grass at that point, a, a grain.
1: Yeah, small grain like a cereal rye or a mixture of a cereal rye and a crimson clover. Clover holds a lot of insects. You see a lot of turkeys in clover, not always because they're eating clover, but they're bugging in there.
0: Right. Okay. Turkeys have an
1: extremely varied diet, uh, guys. They they eat way more species of plants and animals than than deer do. They're they're not near as finicky as a deer.
0: Okay, all right. And then I know the farmer would say, yes, rotate those crops out. Are you rotating your crops in your food plots? From yeah, you know, here at Proven
1: Garden, I have fields that's had soybeans in them every year for 15 years now, and they're still growing great, doing well. But my how I get away with that! My secret is I only know till drill. I don't interrupt that natural cycle of fungi and bacteria that are healing and preparing the soil and moving nutrients around. And I always have a rotation in that I'm going to overseed those beans during the fall with a blend of, of you know radishes and turnips and and different brassicas and small grains. Wheat, cereal, rye, stuff like that. So I am having a crop rotation. It's not one summer to the next summer. It's one part of the year to the next part of the year. I got you. Okay.
0: And each of those crops that you're rotating out are are using and adding different minerals to the soil.
1: Yeah. You know, again, as I matured, like a lot of guys, I started planting food plots. I was just trying to find a way to attract critters. I didn't care about anything but attracting a critter to, you know, 20 yards broadside. And now I'm way more interested in building quality soil because without quality soil, my my land's going to decline in quality. I'm going to contribute to erosion. I'm going to contribute to putting more carbon in the atmosphere. And my critters aren't going to be as healthy. So I plant cereal rye, not because deer or turkey eat the rye heads. I've never known that to happen because when I terminate that crop with a roller crimper, which stimulates a herd of buffalo going through there and trampling it down on the Great Prairie, I add a huge amount of organic matter to the soil. Mm -hmm. That organic matter is like a slow release fertilizer providing nutrients for the next crop and doing a great job of holding soil moisture in place for the next crop. So I'm, I'm more interested in coming up with blends that A, feed the critters, and B, improve the soil than the old days where I just worried about if a critter eat it or not. Got gotcha. you. Okay.
0: And there is actually a lot of that that you're showing on the website now because it's that time of year where you're starting to crimp and, yep. and, and do some and, of that. Yes,
1: and and uh, A, we're doing it, and we, we make a new show every week, 52 weeks a year, so we literally just show what we're doing. We don't. I don't have a program for next week right now, literally. We just show whatever we're doing that week. And B, I'm passionate about freely sharing with others how to inexpensively improve the soil. We haven't added any fertilizer here in four years because we've refined our crop rotation. Different crops like buckwheat is really good about mobilizing phosphorus and making it available to other plants. And, of course, soybeans or legume to add a lot of nitrogen. Over 70% of the air we breathe is nitrogen. Why would anyone ever pay for nitrogen? Over an acre, there's about 70 million pounds of nitrogen in the atmosphere over every acre of the earth. Why would anyone ever pay to add a couple hundred pounds when there's more than you could ever use right there? It's got yeah. the right plants to convert it. Right. So, so we're really into, myself personally, to improving the soil and, and it's much cheaper to buy a blend of plants than to buy fertilizer or buy herbicide or something like that.
0: Yeah. Okay. All right. So let's step off of our island a little bit here. Mm-hmm. We have talked about what we would do in an ideal world. And the ideal world really doesn't exist because we do have those neighbors. And like I said earlier, we have no control over what those neighbors are doing, whether that's cutting timber or thinning timber or supplemental feeding, whatever it happens to be. So, but let's look at at our overall plan. So today we have a hundred acres of trees. Our neighbors have 50% 50% fields, 50% forest land. What would you recommend for our 100 acres at that point? Would you still go 50/50 on it?
1: Yeah, I would. You know, what I want to do, and I'm, you know, it matter how much land you own. More land you own, the more neighbors you have, or the more acres of contact you have with neighbors. Literally, I mean, there's just no getting around it. So, it doesn't matter if you're who you are. Neighbors are always a factor. Mm-hmm. And so, I want to create the best habitat on my property selfishly, to encourage the critters to spend more hours of the day on my property. right? And and so I want that that 50-50 is just a great ratio. And we know that in places in Kentucky and Missouri and Kansas where there's just huge turkey populations. They end up being somewhere in that 50-50 range. It's not all ag and it's not all timber. Mm -hmm. It's a mix in between. And, you know, if you said, hey, Grant, I got, you know, 40-60, I would not say that's bad, but 50-50 just works out well. Okay. And and I would like that juxtaposed a little bit, or other words, I don't want one side of the property, the west side, to be all timber and the east side to be all fields. I'd like that kind of mixed in there a little bit.
0: Okay. And Um.
1: and then of that, I want plenty of food, through you know, food plots or crops, whatever. And I want an ample portion in nesting and or brood habitat. And nesting and brood habitat can be the same. Nesting habitat can get away with being a little thicker. Brood habitat needs quite a bit of bare dirt or open ground because. Those little bee chicks, they're walking through six inches of fescue thatch or a big, deep pile of hardwood leaves. They're just not going to make it. They're not going to be very mobile. Something's going to eat them. Hmm. So I-, I like some bare ground And that comes from having bunch-type plants like native grasses or other plants that have this umbrella habitat. And in those situations, you usually have pretty high poll survival.
0: Okay, and one of those you one of those plants you mentioned and that could be something we plant, and that's soybeans. But getting soybeans to come up and and get going by the time those poults are hashed is probably a challenge, isn't it? No, Let's I don't know.
1: Out. I'm gonna plant soybeans when the soil temperature is 55 degrees, specifically 55 degrees at two inches deep at 9 a.m. Most states, including Alabama, have a website that shows you the soil temperature by county, statewide. Is that important to ag? And the reason we want that, soybeans are a soft seed, a little bit weaker than like a corn or a clover. If you plant them when it's too cold, they takes so long to germinate, there's going to be some mortality before they germinate. And it stresses the plant. Just like a newborn baby that's not fed well, takes a long time to catch up with someone that had pre- good prenatal health. Right. The same is true with the, that seed. We don't think about it. But you stress that seed out, it does some funky things to it. And the plant, when it matures, won't be as productive as, it, as if the plant got off to a great start. So I'm going to wait that soil temperature is about 55 degrees or warmer at about two inches deep at 9 a.m. And the reason we're talking 9 a.m. is because the soil cools all night long and it starts warming up about 9 a.m. when the sun gets high enough to put out enough radiant heat. Mm-hmm. And so we can get those soybeans in there pretty early. Now, I never disc my soybeans. Again, I never disc. I terminate the standing crop with a crimper or herbicide or whatever and drill right into it or broadcast right into it. So. Whatever my fall crop was will we'll, we'll be good turkey habitat also.
0: Okay. All right. Again, talking about what our neighbors are doing. I mean, we have no control over what they're planning or anything, like I said, yep. you're still going to stick to your plan as far as what you're planning and, and how you're managing your 100 acres in that scenario, no matter what the neighbors are doing. You're kind of looking, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're kind of looking at what the neighbors are doing as far as how their land lies, what water they may have on it, and that kind of thing to determine. Yep. You know, you the, the,
1: the worst thing a choice. neighbor can do, if especially in Missouri where it's illegal to feed during turkey season, the worst thing a neighbor can do is have feed out because turkeys are addicted to feed, especially shelled corn, worse than cocaine. I mean, they just, they're addicted to it. Mm-hmm. So, But neighbors that are going to just pile out a bunch of corn usually aren't making really good brooding habitat or nesting habitat or strutting areas or whatever. They're just counting on the corn. So there's no doubt if my neighbor, and this happens to me here in Missouri, my neighbor pours out a bag of corn, 100 yards off the line or whatever, I can't keep the turkeys from going to it. But they're not going to spend all day there. Right. And then I've got the best breeding habitat, nesting habitat, whatever it is. They're going to be there in the morning or come back later on in the day, whatever it is, and utilize that better habitat. If yeah. you're in a state that allows feeding, baiting, and your neighbor's got a big old corn pile out, it's almost, it's, just, it's hard to say, tough to, for me to admit, but you almost, have to have a corn pile out in the middle of your property. You don't even have to hunt around it because otherwise the turkey is going over there to that addiction called yellow corn. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. just a fact. Yeah. And I wish states, I've said this on record meantime in state meetings and scientific meetings, but I wish they'd get on the same page and, and enforce it. If, if there's no baiting, great. Enforce it where everyone plays on a level playing field. If there is baiting, then, then let people bait. But don't be in the middle because it's just not fair to the landowners.
0: Right. Yeah. And what you just said, I witnessed firsthand when we went to Texas several years ago, turkey hunting, that it was actually the second time I went to Texas, we hunted this ranch. And I can't remember (laughs) how many acres the ranch was totaled, but the ranch owner basically turned the ranch over to us when we got there and said, here are the property boundaries. You guys enjoy it. You know, I'll see you in three days. Mm -hmm. And what we saw was, The turkeys would roost on his property along the creek that ran through his property. Turkeys would roost there in the evenings. In the mornings, they would fly down, and they would make a beeline for the neighbor's property. And I found a spot where the turkeys were coming underneath the fence to and from the neighbor's property and Mm -hmm. just happened to look down there with my binoculars and saw the corn feeder down there with corn on the ground and i said well, oh, well that's that explains it perfectly so mm-hmm. i sat down there in a matter of an hour and killed a turkey and then went back the next day and sat down and a matter of an hour killed another turkey as they were coming yep. back and
1: forth yep so they're worse than deer i, I believe they're more conditionable than deer they yeah. just they just it, it's it's a bad addiction they have to corn or other supplements and anyway yep. but if my neighbor's doing that you know i can't do anything about it and so I'm just going to have the best habitat knowing that they're going to come back to my habitat.
0: Right. Yeah. And if you're planting the right things and, and you've got those plants that are high in nitrogen there and they're drawing those insects in, then like you said, they're, they've got that diverse appetite and what they, what they eat is so varied that they're going to be in to the corn probably in the morning and maybe in bugs in the afternoon so
1: yeah they're going to come back they're going to go. hens are going to go to the best nesting area at that time of year hens are going to find the best nesting area in their home range and they're very there's a pecking order there the more mature hens will get the better nesting sites and the less mature will be on the fringes of it
0: mm-hmm. okay very good well you've taught me a lot and you've taught me that, or I guess really I already knew this, that I don't have enough time to, to spend out on my little piece of property doing what I want to do. <laughs> but I, You
1: know, and I probably none of us do, that. but what we can do, and what I do all the time or tell people to do is identify the most limiting factor. You can't do it all. None of us usually don't have the time or the budget. But identify the most limiting factor. Is that water? Is talking about turkeys? Is that brood cover, nest cover, strut areas? You know, a great thing to do is just reduce predators. Turkeys and deer both really sense where they're safer. Their number one motivating factor is not breeding, not food, but safety, literally. And so if you have reduced predators on your 100 acres and your neighbors haven't trapped a coon in 20 years, turkeys will pick up on that. And there's lots of research that shows this. Yeah. So one of the things we did at Proven Grounds is we trap very aggressively every trapping season and remove a lot of predators, about 60 a
0: year. Yeah, Okay. And you would recommend, of course, trapping right before and right during the nesting season and, and brood yep. rearing season.
1: Yeah, if legal where you are in Missouri, we have to stop trapping at the end of January, which is unfortunate. But states where you can trap during fawning or nesting season, you have a lot higher success at getting those poults and fawns up to maturity. Yeah, okay.
0: Very good. Well, tell us a little bit about Growing Deer TV, where we can find it, and what you guys have going on currently.
1: Yeah, you know, guys, I'm a consulting biologist. I, I didn't like the university system. I don't like politics. So, just when I finished my doctorate degree, I, by that time I had enough clients. I just kind of kept on going. It wasn't any master written out plan on my part, it was just fun to go help landowners improve their wildlife habitat. Right. And so I did that long time. Lily, one day I come home, and my youngest daughter was about oh, just a just a infant, and. I sat on the floor with her, rolling a ball back and forth, and the phone rang. And as soon as the phone rang, she said, "Daddy." And I realized she knew me from the phone ringing. That's how much I was traveling. Oh wow! And I said, "This has got to change." I'm very family oriented, so my wife and I sat down and kind of prayed it through, and decided that we would start giving away information that we should charge for on a show, on a web-based show, Growing Deer TV, and see if you know quality companies would come alongside us and. That was eight years ago. We're coming up right on our 400th episode. We make a new episode and publish it every week, 52 weeks out of the year. We've never had a repeat episode mm-hmm. in, in in eight years, 52 weeks out of the year. That's Always true. Always some new. And everyone says, hey, that?" it's really easy. We simply just film what we're doing that week. I mean, if we're planting, hunting, trapping, burning, whatever it is, that's what we film, so right. I can't tell you for sure what next week's episode is going to be about right now, literally, because I haven't finished out the week yet. Yeah, and and, and we do it. and There'll be you know seven minutes long to fifteen minutes long, whatever depends on the week. We will share what we think's and you know important. We don't have any filler or not. There's no sitting around the porch beating a drum mm-hmm. trying to fill up time. And um, anyway, it's been good. We've been very blessed to have a very, very large audience now, and it's and I enjoy sharing information, so it's been really good for us.
0: Well, a friend of mine turned me on to it about oh, probably a couple of months ago, and I have been consuming it in large quantities. And so <laughs> I've really enjoyed it. I I like your methodology for teaching of those habitat management techniques, and I've learned a lot about food plot planning and how to maintain those and and get the most out of them. And so I thoroughly have enjoyed it and I appreciate you putting those together and distributing those out there. And I think it's a great resource for anyone listening to the show. Like I said, whether they own property or they lease property, shoot, even if you hunt public property, you can get on there and and you can even pick up some, some tips and techniques on trapping that you can use on your public properties to help improve those. So you know, well,
1: I, I really appreciate you watching and and sharing that. And that you know, we we have more content than we can put in an episode. So every day we're making posts on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or whatever. And and if you like to see what we're doing during the week or what's going on, we you know stages are up, blah blah blah. You can just check those out and get instant information because we're trying to share as we're out there in the field doing it. We were out in the field this morning down in Arkansas and we shared from there.
0: Yeah. And if we want to find you on Facebook and all the social media channels, just yeah, just go to Grant Woods. Woods. You can, yeah, Grant can, Woods, just okay. search on Grant Woods and you'll find us. Okay, perfect. Grant, thank you again very much for sharing your knowledge with us about some habitat management for wild turkeys and all the, like I said, all the sharing that you do on your website and your videos there. And I appreciate your time today. and. If you ever head down towards Alabama and it's that time of year when the woods are blooming and starting to green up, you've got my phone number. You are welcome to call me, and we'll see if we can find a tree to go sit beside.
1: I look forward to that. I hope our paths cross soon. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank
0: you, Grant. Have a great afternoon. All right. Goodbye. All right. I really hope that you enjoyed that interview. As I mentioned at the end of the call with Grant, I learned a great deal from speaking with him on the phone, and I'm learning a ton from watching his videos on his website. I think, no, I don't think. I know you guys can learn a great deal from Grant and his crew as well. So check him out at growingdeer.tv. I don't think you'll be disappointed. Okay, if you are a listener to the free episode of the Turkey Hunter Podcast, that is all I have for you today. But if you want to hear the story of my close encounter with a wild turkey today, then you'll need to subscribe to the premium content of the Turkey Hunter podcast to get that. To subscribe, all you need to do is text the word Turkey Hunter to the number 44222. That's Turkey Hunter to the number 44222. Make it one word. Don't put a space in there. And I want to thank Kevin Lee for pointing out to me that something was wrong with my text service this past week. And because of Kevin's help and letting me know that, I was able to get that fixed. So you guys should have no issue in texting the word Turkey Hunter to 44222 and then following the directions from there. Now, before I say goodbye for the week, can you do me one favor? If you enjoyed and learned something from this week's interview with Grant, then please click the share button in your podcast player app. If you'll click on that share button in your podcast player app and forward by text or email the link to this week's show to two or three of your turkey hunting buddies, that will be a huge help to the show and it will be much appreciated. Okay. Thank you guys so much for tuning in this week. I know that you have choices and I appreciate you spending your time with us. I hope you have a wonderful week and I look forward to seeing you again next week. Goodbye. Thanks for tuning in. You were just listening to the Turkey Hunter podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please go on over to iTunes and leave a five-star review.